0: Back to throw Fitzpatrick. Throw it
1: high into the air. Parker, touchdown. What a win for this Miami Dolphin team. Wow. What is up Dolph fans and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins official podcast network covering your Miami Dolphins each and every day. How is it going everybody? Happy Friday, happy Juneteenth. I am your host Travis Wingfield and I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football and on today's show we are joined by legendary Dolphins linebacker on the Finns flashback to discuss legendary Dolphins defensive coordinator Bill Arnsbarger, who's up for a very, very prestigious award. We'll discuss the accomplishments of Coach and hear from one of his most accomplished players here in Miami. Not one, not two, but three interceptions on the 1982 AFC Championship game over those no-good New York Jets here on this Friday, June the 19th edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins So that very prestigious award that Bill Arnsbarger, Dolphins defensive coordinator for a long time for a significant chunk of the Don Shula era and pretty well regarded as the best assistant coach in Miami Dolphins history. And Arnsbarger is among eight nominees for the 2020 Paul Dr. Z Zimmerman Award for Lifetime Achievement as an Assistant Coach in the National Football League, an honor bestowed by the Pro Football Writers Association here in the National Football League. And just real quick on Dr. Z, the name of the award, I will say for the rest of my lifetime that he was the biggest influence in my life because even though I was a youngster, when he was really in his prime and really on the the. The focal point, the forefront of all football writing and all football commentary. I always loved the way he was able to piece together the analyst side and also the good writing, the good storytelling side. That's who I always wanted to model my writing, my storytelling, my podcasting, my radio voice, whatever it was going to be that I was going to do in my life, I always modeled it after Dr. Z. So rest in peace, Dr. Z. As for Bill Arnsbarger, among these eight nominees for the Lifetime Award from the Pro Football Writers Association, what a big honor is to have him even among those names to be among those eight people that are in fact up for this award and we're going to talk to A.J. Dewey former Dolphins linebacker here in just a moment to get some clarity some some perspective on who Bill Arnsberger was as a man and as a coach but just some quick facts here on Coach Arnsberger he was born all the way back in 1926 he passed away back in 2015 one of the most successful defensive coaches in the NFL's 100 year history serving as an assistant coach in the NFL for 21 years which he was with Shula there in Baltimore and the Colts came with Shula to Miami in 1970 he was there from 70 to 73 and then again from 76 to 1983 and would later go back to the NFL after a stint in college with the Chargers in San Diego, the defensive coordinator from 92 to 94. And if you listen to the Locked On Dolphins podcast when I hosted after Dolphins wins, we'd play the song, Win. Win. Win, 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 win. All we do is win, and that's all Bill Arnsparger did. His defense finished among the top five in fewest points allowed 15 times out of 21 seasons. Five of those years, Arnsparger's defense led the NFL in fewest points allowed. His team's earned trip to the NFL championship game or Super Bowl in seven out of 21 seasons, so into the final four in one-third of his NFL seasons. As an assistant coach, and each of the three teams he coached with earned at least one trip to the NFL championship or Super Bowl during his tenure, the Colts to the NFL championship game. We know about Miami's two Super Bowl victories, including five trips to the Super Bowl, and then after the eight year absence in the NFL, he would come back to the Chargers and be a part of that team that went to a Super Bowl as well. And his units won World Championships following the 1972 and 1973 seasons, including the NFL's only perfect season, the 1972 Miami Dolphins, as we all know. The Dolphins had a combined record of 32-2 in those two seasons, and that has also yet to been surpassed. Overall, his teams posted a regular season mark of 214, 85, and 6. That's a 7-12 win percentage, averaging more than 10 regular season wins per year, and in an era when you only played 14 regular season games for the most part of that era. His 72 and 73 Dolphins teams averaged just 12.2 points allowed per game and 10.7 points allowed per game. That's fewer than any of the other members on this nominee list who were also defensive coordinators. They are Buddy Ryan, Floyd Peters, Romeo Cronell, and Rod Marinelli. Bill Arnsparger had the lowest points per game than any of those guys in those two seasons with the Miami Dolphins his 53 defense was named for the situational use of number 53 linebacker Bob Matheson as a fourth linebacker in the early 1970s and that served as something of a precursor to the modern 3-4 defense that teams began using later that decade of course we had the Buddy Ryan 46 defense there with the Bears these guys on this list are innovators and Bill Arnsparger was the innovator of innovators he was nicknamed one more real By his players for studying countless hours of film revealing his future opponent's offensive tactics. And I think this quote here from Dick Anderson really says it all. It's remarkable that he never called a defense that we didn't have total faith in. The man was brilliant. He put us in the right place at the right time for our abilities. He never asked someone to do something they couldn't mentally or physically do. End quote. And Arnsborger, of course, was there for the no name defense which recorded the first and now one of only two defensive Super Bowl shutouts with the 14 7 win over Washington in Super Bowl 7. Of course, the only Washington touchdown on that day came on a special teams fumble from Gary O'Premian. His defense didn't allow a Minnesota score in Super Bowl 7, rather, Super Bowl 8, check that, until Miami was up 24 0 on their way to a 24 7 win. Overall, in the 1973 playoffs and Super Bowl, they allowed a total of 33 points against Cincinnati, Oakland, and Minnesota. Arnsparger's defense has posted two shutouts in conference championship games, the most by any coordinator since 1970. the 1970 merger. rather. The Dolphins won the 1971 AFC championship game with a 21-0 win over the Colts as safety Dick Anderson scored in a 62-yard touchdown return on an interception. In 1982, his Killer bees defense led the way to a 14-0 win in the AFC championship game against the rival Jets as linebacker A.J. Dewey recorded not one, not two, but three three interceptions including a 35-yard pick six back to the house for a touchdown and that's a great way to segue into my interview here with former Dolphins linebacker former Dolphins great AJ Dewey and riding shotgun now on the drive time podcast is the 1977 defensive rookie of the year Pro Bowl linebacker who spent the entirety of his eight-year career with the Miami Dolphins number 77 AJ Dewey AJ welcome in sir
0: well, hey, it's, it's good to be uh, part of a, a flashback uh, podcast. Uh, I'll, I'll give you as much information as I can drum up here and uh, just have fun at it, right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's the whole point we're doing here. It's a little bit slow for content these days because we don't have the guys in the building, so it's nice to go back and, and check in on some of the, the old past wins of, of this team's you know storied franchise, storied organization, and you're definitely a big part of that, and so was Coach Arnsparger, and we're going to get into that here just real quickly, but first... How are you doing, man? What's life like for you these days?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I'm practicing uh, COVID nineteen. I mean, I got my I got my COVID nineteen haircut. I mean, a bunch of my wife posted on Facebook uh, when she was cutting my hair out in the backyard, and uh, I was calling it my COVID nineteen, uh, uh, and she was calling it Hillbilly Chronicles. So we kind of had <laughs> two different names for it. But uh, it's uh, it's been a little different, you know, the impact that this virus is, you know. Put on our country and our and our in our world. Uh, it's 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 tough. It's uh, but I'm kind of getting used to it now. Uh, it's it's just part of life. We have to just you know deal with and grow through it, and hopefully uh, you know the, the brighter side of it comes sooner than we're uh, anticipating.
1: Well, she did a good job because I've seen a lot of people doing their own haircuts, cutting their own hair, and it doesn't go very well for them. So you, you definitely have a, a good in-house barber there taking care of you and 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 you know to kind of make a, a difficult transition here. I want to first start with. You know, I'm sure you do a lot of these interviews, and when you do them, I'm sure the first game that comes up is that 1982 AFC Championship game. And why wouldn't it? Because first, I, I just I want to hear your perspective about that game, like going into it, throughout the course of it, after the first pick, after the second pick. Like, when did you know that you were going to be so heavily involved in the game plan and have such a big impact on that game, and really be the difference in the game?
0: Well, I you know I kind of uh, I did an interview just a week and a half ago with Yahoo Sports, and, and kind of that same you know, storyline we were trying to go through. And the guy was shocked that I said that in the moment you just don't even think about it. But, you know, that getting back from the start of the week, uh, it kind of was a crazy uh, weather situation that whole week. I mean, it was one of those times uh, in our country where, you know, there's a lot of snow going on up north and on the east coast. And by the time it makes its way down the coastline, once it gets to about South Carolina, it turns into you know, maybe some sleet and then gets to Georgia and, uh, you know, in Florida, it it becomes rain. So we had, we had rain almost every day for a good five or six, seven days. And it wasn't, it wasn't just a a storm. It was what those that just had rain throughout the the day. Uh, We had to juggle our schedule around a little bit. Uh, We practiced some in the mornings because Coach Shula, I guess they would get some weather forecasts and know that the heavier rains would be in the afternoon. And we, we, you know, we, we were there for the full day like normal, but you know, practices were quite short, and uh, we were just working on, I guess, uh, different things that would uh, be successful for us uh, on offense. On defense, you really can't, you know, prepare because you don't know what they're going to do uh, offensively. You just got to prepare for their game plan. So, you know, we worked on that, and uh, when we got we got down to the field uh, at the Orange Bowl, I mean, I was under the impression that the stadium was going to be fine. I'm sure everybody was because we had what they call prescription athletic turf. I'm not sure you know, the, the average fan knows what that means, but it's something that was put in place back in the days when they were converting all the AstroTurf fields to natural grass. And uh, when, they, when they had the AstroTurf fields, they had already taken the turtle back out of the, uh, out of the field. So, you know, you're not old enough to know about turtleback fields. You know, but, you know back, back in the day, that's what it was because of the, uh, the fall off of the rain. So they built these PAT fields with uh, a major underground pumping system and it was in the early stages of that development in, in that type of uh, field planning that they obviously didn't build the pumps with enough capacity. So the pumps—this is all told to me after the fact—that the city of Miami owned the orange bowl. The pumps went down; they were having trouble getting, you know, water, uh, you know, sucked off the field to drain out, and it just turned into a complete flat bed of about two or three inches of, of mucky, mucky water, like you're walking in, in the marsh almost, right? So. Uh, and it, it, it played to our advantage obviously the jets were a team that was loaded with team speed they had a lot of uh, go to receivers who would stretch the field on us but you know both teams had to play in those conditions and uh you know I'm tired of hearing jet fans whining about it. I'm telling these people I said man this is this is like 40 odd years ago come on get over it you know what i mean you know how many things have gone on in your life that couldn't have made it better right so but you know the, but in a nutshell that's kind of the way it played out from that week practicing and participating and 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 on game day, but but getting back to, I guess the question is how it played out, you know, interception one, two, three, you know, it, it was just, it was just making plays on the field. I mean, uh, I, to this day, I really don't look back and, and, and sit there and say, you know, oh, I knew exactly what they were going to run or, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and take credit for any of that kind of stuff. You know, we just, we played good coverages. Uh, obviously the field uh, being in the condition it was, it, it allowed you know, both players to kind of play guarded, you know, because the receivers, uh, they're not about to try and make some fancy move on you because they're afraid that their footing might give out on them. And for us as a defensive player, we just tried to trail and track and just stay in place as best we could. One thing that we did do uh, as a team is that we were able to, uh, after warm-up, so even before warm-up, some of the guys made a decision to go in and change their cleats. So we we, we played with some longer cleats. Uh, You know, we were playing with, uh, you know, the the, the screw-in type of cleats where – you know, most of them come with a 3-8-inch, I think, the standard model, and then it's a half-inch and there's 7-8. So we all went to the longest plate we could possibly get, and, and it helped them to pay it off for us. But, and, you know, getting back, okay, the first interception happened to be on a, uh, uh, I think a route that was thrown to the tight end on the seam route, and we were playing a coverage that we worked on against uh, uh, the Jets that, that week, and it was a coverage we hadn't shown that much of. And I think Richard Todd probably thought uh, the tight end had me beat, Uh and in, in the, cause the safety was playing kind of back. We were in a double coverage situation and he kind of under the tight end. And I, I made a, uh, I went up and, and jumped for it and made a good catch on that one. Uh, the second one, they were trying to throw a little, uh, uh, they were trying to run a route where the a halfback option route, they call it where he would try and just, you know, fake me out and, and, and make a move. And he did. And, uh, unfortunately, Richard threw the pass behind the running back who he had, he had me beat. If you look at, he had me beat by three or four steps. I mean, if he throws a good pass, that could have been a big play for them, but he, he threw it behind him, and he, when he reached with his back arm, it kind of tipped it to me, and I was able to make the interception. On the third one, which was the game-breaker, and the, the game-changer was uh, a little screen pass. They, they tried to throw out in the flats. Uh, it was just some technique we worked on all the time, you know, protecting our legs when you're rushing the pass, so they like to cut you and get, your, get you uh, to the ground. Uh, I was able to do that, and uh, when Richard couldn't uh, throw the ball high enough because he anticipated me being cut by the offensive lineman, he kind of threw it. To where I kind of made a fingertip, kind of another bat the ball around, played with it in the air. It seemed like it took forever and, you know, in the end zone. And there it is, game over, you know, Super Bowl bound, right?
1: Yeah, 100%. And we all remember that part, at least the ones that were around for it before, a little before my time, but I did get yeah, yeah, a chance yeah, yeah. to go back. I and- can see
0: you, you. Yeah, you're a young guy. Even my kids, <laughs> right? you're probably the, the age of my kids in the days before I came to the team. And when I played with the team and a little after, man, the Dolphins were the, they, were, they were the, had the it factor, you know what I mean? You know, like everybody in the country loved us. You know, we had fans all over the country. Now, you know, there's still a lot of good Dolphin fans around the country, but back in those days, man, you felt it when you went on the road to play.
1: Well, I, I think that that has a large impact for why someone like myself was a became a big Dolphins fan because, A.J., I'm from Washington State. I didn't even grow up anywhere near South Florida, so – I think that, that tradition, that history really attracted me at a young age. The colors didn't didn't hurt either. The winning success, yeah, yeah. Dan Marino, all those factors went into why I became a Dolphins fan now and work for the team. So, it, I mean, I think you guys laid a foundation that really developed a huge, huge contingency of Dolphins fans. And, and you mentioned the sloppy play on the field that day, and I'm always curious because, you know, we talk about the snow and how – like snow games where, oh, this might be a problem for the opposing team because they're not used to playing in the snow. But it's always more of an issue for the defensive players, right? Because the offense knows where they're going, but you're the one that has to react in those sloppy conditions. And with a muddy, wet field, same idea as snow, right?
0: Well, I mean, it's a little different because uh, usually in snow, you're still going to have some kind of footing because uh, the, the, the surface under the snow is still consistent. But when you play in a muddy, sloppy field, uh, you know, you get more breakage. Uh, you can – I mean, you, you may have a little bit more give in the – some give in the snow, but you've got a lot more give in, in a muddy uh, kind of uh, natural uh, soil situation. Uh, but, but you know, I think it, it played both ways. I mean, because the running backs that were that were gifted and talented for the Jets or even the guys, you know, they had to make a decision. Do, do I plant my foot in the ground? And, and, you know, every if everything is just straightforward, straightforward, I mean, it's pretty much easy to uh, – to make plays it's, it's it's when guys want to cut and, and, and you know like they say put that foot in the ground and go the other way that's when it gets a little challenging so at some point you know that the other guy isn't going to be you know being a, a you know like a, a little a bee back there trying to buzz around and, and, and make cuts and make moves so you, you can't you know line a guy up and, and, and go for him and probably make an easier tackle than he would think.
1: Right, yeah, and it's it's uh, it's definitely something that I think contributed to the performance that day for you guys there as well and get you back to the Super Bowl. And one of the reasons this Dolphins team was so good for so long was because two coaches, and Coach Shula and Coach Arnsparger, that both just really were with the team for so long. You had that continuity. And I'm always curious to know how those two type of coaches can balance each other because as we do this podcast here with A.J. Dewey, former Dolphins linebacker, we are honoring Coach Arnsparger today, one of eight nominees for that Dr. Z Lifetime Achievement Award. And I'm always fascinated by possible coaching juxtaposition in terms of personalities and the way they mesh together, because you've got Coach Shula, who is known as this ultimate tactician, this ultimate or this ultimate disciplinarian guy that can really fire a team up. Was Coach Arnsberger that same way in terms of the intimidation factor, or was he more pure tactician? How do they balance each other?
0: I mean Arnsey or- or- had a uh, he had an intimidating kind of demeanor, but it was It was kind of hidden. It it wasn't like it didn't play out like it did with Coachula. Um, Coachula, almost every day, you know, you were sort of intimidated by, you know, what he was all about, you know, what he's brought to the game and his accomplishments. You know, you are, you're like, you're honored to be part of that, but you are kind of like you're in awe. You're going, man, you know, this guy, he's the real deal. You know, he's the guy that, uh, you know, as a kid, you know, growing up, I mean, here I am, you know, uh, in high school and, and, and through college, you know. Being a, a crazy football fan because that was my love. I played a lot of sports, but my love was football, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't wait to watch games. You know, back in those days, you were lucky to see two games on a Sunday. Now you can see, you know, all whatever there is, all fourteen of them, because you got the yeah. So it, it's kind of a little different, you know, scenario. You know, you younger generation get to uh, enjoy a little differently. But but he, Orny, never he never like was uh, you know a guy who had a high range in his, in his tone, you know, he, he would always talk, you know, mild mannered, you know, when he was mad, you could almost see it in his face and you can almost kind of, you know, get, get a glimpse of coming off the field that he wasn't happy with that last series and how we played. And you knew what he, you know, you knew what was coming your way. You know, he was going to get, you know, get down on the chalkboard and just, you know, show us, you know, this is something we've seen all week long. How are you guys not picking it up? How are you know not recognize it? And it? It was amazing. The guy, the guy had, uh, uh, you know, he had one mind, but he had 11 sets of eyes working because, you know, he had almost all 11 guys figured out on the field, you know, you know, where they need to be. It's almost like having the eye in the sky and here he is sitting uh, on the sideline with a headphone on and uh, looking at it ground low. So I was pretty impressed how he could, you know, just diagnose what we were doing right and wrong in our defensive schemes.
1: It just proves more than one way to skin a cat, right? You've got the the kind of brash and, and, and aggressive coach and then you got the guy that's kind of the strong silent type that can get his message across that way as well. And I think one of the reasons that he really did get that message across and had so many historic defenses, we talk about the 53 defense and I want to hear your perspective on what the 53 defense was and how you guys executed it because you go back to Bob Matheson, the player that really kind of helped him create this hybrid defense and I went and looked at your pro football reference page, AJ, and it changes your position from the first three years, I think, in your career from defensive end and into a linebacker position later on in your career, were you kind of that hybrid player, kind of the guy that made that defense work? And what was it about that defense that worked so well?
0: Well, I mean, you know, uh, the fifty-three defense, uh, you know, came around under Bob uh, Matheson's number. He was number fifty-three, and it basically, it it was uh, it was a three-four defense. You know I mean, it's really a three-four defense, but they just called it the fifty-three because you know it was it was uh, implemented. Using a lot of his skill sets, you know, as a pass rusher, as a down lineman, as a guy who can blitz, as a guy who can play coverage, and, and Bob was probably uh, a guy who came out of college maybe as a, a defensive uh, lineman because he was he was a he was a, uh, he was a nice sized guy. I mean, back in the day, you know, linebackers weren't that big. I mean, and, and for me, uh, I was playing defensive end. My first, I played defensive end in college in my first three years uh, with the Dolphins. Uh, and I, what happened was. Uh, Larry Garden, God rest his soul, was uh, in a in a contract year, holdout year, and uh, supposedly, I mean, the, the story is that some sports writer, you know, was interviewing Coach, uh, you know, Coach Shula one day and, and talking to him during training camp and you know, going over the fact that Larry Garden hadn't been in camp yet, uh, you know, and Coach Shula always deferred to whether, you know the, the ownership and the general manager, you know, they, they'll get that done. You know, we, I got to keep you know working with uh, what we have on the field and and some guy. A reporter from the, a thing, the Palm Beach Post says, "Have you? Because, because, let me tell you what happened. Doug Betters, you, you know Doug Betters, obviously, right? So Doug came in the year after me, and I got hurt in my second year, and Doug started playing and and, and doing a great job, and he 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 started. I think it might have been the first, maybe games of my second year because I had I had knee surgery. I had the uh, operation in the Hall of Fame game." And Doug did a great job and and won the position. And, and when, when I got back to playing, you know, Doug Doug Betters had uh, had taken over as you know at my position. And uh, the coaches, you know, started putting me in like in a rotation kind of. Back in those days, there was no such thing as rotation. You know, when you got rotated, you're thinking, ah, oh, man, something's wrong here. You know, what I mean? <laughs> nowadays rotation is that's 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 standard operating procedure, right? You know. Uh, so 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 I would go back in for a series. You know, Doug would play. I'd go. You know, so I wasn't getting as much playing time as I was. You know, after my, here I am. I was made rookie of the year, and here I am, second year in the league, and I've already been beaten out of my position, sort of. Right. So so that was kind of a hard pill to swallow. But you know, I live with it. And uh, Doug and I are best friends. You know, we're still good friends to this day. So uh, so 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 going through that 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 change was difficult. So we come back in year three, and then uh, you know, Doug and I are are playing, uh, you know, for that same position again. We're competing for the right defensive end for the team. Uh, but Doug had the ability to play the left side as well. You know, I, I wasn't that good from the left side, you know, as I was from the right side. So Doug had the ability to play both sides, and he did both of them, you know, pretty good. So what was happening, we kind of go into like a rotation now with with Doug, myself, and then uh, Vern Den Herder, who was the uh, the other defensive end. So, you know, we, we it was it was more of a, a three-man rotation then. And, you know, I would always play – you know, the right end, Doug would play right end, left end, you know, take a seat, Vern would take a seat. So it kind of it became more of a rotation, that, and that became a little more, you know, accustomed to what we were going to go out and do that year. Uh, so coming coming back in year four, which after I, I – uh, that's when Coach Shula got hit with the uh, the question from a reporter saying, you know, won't you give – you know, won't you try AJ at the position? Because I was a good player. I mean, you know, the, the sports writers knew it. They were probably, you know, like kind of going, damn, man, you know, this is this has got to be tough for the coaches. You know, you got AJ and Doug. You know, two great players compete playing. You know, why can't both of them be on the field at the same time? And Coach Shula must have gave it some thought. And I don't know. I don't know if it was the next day or two days later. He, you know, he says, uh, you know, and, and, and this is kind of like in year four, which is like my option year of my contract. So I don't know if you know much about that, but your option year is kind of like that's your make or break year. So I'm kind of going. It's either. They're they're trying to tell me that they don't have no need for me no more or whatever. So you know you kind of a lot of things run through your mind. But so I I, I took it as a challenge and I, I worked hard at it. Uh, Coach Coach Ornsborg was very very uh, patient with me and, uh, and and detailed and timely with me. So I got to give a lot of credit to him for creating the monster. I guess you can say because you know I went from playing defensive end uh, being a down lineman my whole life as a kid, high school, college. So now playing in a two-point stance, and so I went that whole training camp, uh, you know, working at uh, the outside linebacker position that uh, that Larry Gordon uh, was supposed to, uh, you know, be playing, uh, and then all of a sudden Larry Gordon signed his contract like like every typical good veteran does about the week before the season starts. So now, you know, I've been working the whole training camp uh, at, at, at outside linebacker, and uh and then, then, and then the next thing is – so now they start saying, uh, okay, we'll, we'll move you to – because a couple of the inside linebackers had gotten hurt during, uh, during training camp. So he says, well, let's go try some of this inside linebacker stuff out for a while. So I ended up, uh, you know, performing well, uh, you know, at the inside linebacker position. And I just kind of started to learn how to play the outside linebacker position, which is a lot different because when you're playing outside, you're on the line of scrimmage and you're lined up, you're more – the, the hits hit happen a little quicker, you know, uh, you have to react quicker. When you play in the, in the middle, when you're off the ball four or five yards, it's more recognition, more evaluating what's happening in front of you. And that was a little more of a challenge for me. But, you know, I, I pulled it off. And, uh, and he, you know, after my eighth year, you know, we had did a lot of things with it. Like you're saying, We I think Orange Barger invented the zone blitz. I tell people to this day, he had to invent the zone blitz because I don't remember seeing any teams doing any of the stuff that we were doing. So, and not now when I look at the zone blitz, I'm kind of going, wow, man, this is, this is like the Rolls Royce of the zone blitz when we were the <laughs> Toyota Corolla. I mean, you know, we were just starting to, because it's crazy. The zone blitz today is like, you know, and maybe, you know, and, and, and maybe, you know, if I would have stuck around another four or five years, I might've seen how it developed, you know, into what it is now, but to, to the zone blitz today, I mean, it's it's its own. It's it's its own animal. I mean, it's 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 unbelievable. But the the, the reason it's so good today is because they've got so many good, uh, aggressive, athletic people on defense. I mean, when you see a defensive tackle dropping back into play coverage, when you see uh, you know the corner and the safety coming off the same side and asking your outside linebacker to go outside and cover a wide receiver. I mean, you know, it, it just it's just insane some of the things that they're doing with the zone blitz. But it's all because you know, the talent of the players in
1: today's game. Yeah, you watch Coach Flores' defenses. You're going to have guys coming from anywhere on the football field for pass rushes, and so it definitely evolved from there. I'm curious to hear about how Arns, Coach Arns really implemented those systems and, you know, the zone blitz and getting you to play different positions and saying, you know, dude, let's go ahead and play you inside. Let's play you outside. Was he the type of guy that would get on the football field and, and kind of and walk you through it and show you the technique and show you the the, the idea no. of the uh, tactic?
0: Arns, you – he was not a he was not a instructional coach. I go. mean, you know, <laughs> okay. He, you know, I mean, my defensive line coach when I first started yeah. coming, that guy would get the three-point stance and just blow me up. You know what I mean? You know, Arns was not that kind of guy. You know, he would he'd draw everything up on the chalkboard, he'd show us film of, you know. you know, he would, he, that's why he was like that one more real guy, I guess, you know, I can teach more, I can teach better with the reels than I can by lining up and showing guys, you know, how I want this done. So, you know, it it was, uh, it was definitely a thing that he, he had a a good skill at at, at teaching us by, you know, drawing it, talking about it, explaining it to us, you know, getting us to understand when you do it this way, this is what the offense is going to see. And this is how they're going to react. And this, this is the way we can, Make, make the execution of our defensive scheme work better for us. So it, it's uh, it, it definitely a unique coaching style and system that he had.
1: We, I heard a podcast earlier today that was about you know modern-day football, and they're talking about how the, the best coaches of all time are the ones that can adapt with the times and really kind of reinvent themselves. And I think we see that all the time in modern-day football and back in you know the past days of football. And we know Shula was that way as well. And you mentioned you know your multiple positions. Was Coach Arns that way with everybody? Like, did he look at a safety and say maybe you can play corner? Maybe this maybe this defensive tackle can get outside and pass rush. Was everybody kind of on the table to do multiple things in that defense?
0: It wasn't. No the the skill set the skill set. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from the guys that I played with, but I mean, the skill set wasn't there to, to use 11 guys and 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 say that. You know, AJ can do this. You know, Kim, Bo Camper was another guy who was very versatile. Um, we had Mike Kozlowski, who was kind of a versatile guy who played safety, who played slot, who played linebacker for us. We had fearful guys on the defensive side of the ball that, you know, we built our schemes around, you know. Uh, could we have done that? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if we had the ability to to do, like I said, bring a safety in a corner from, from the same side of the field and, and expect for your for your outside linebacker and your middle linebacker to, to, to play coverages against receivers who run 4 or 3. I mean, so <laughs> it, 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 so it, it. Yeah, you know, we did the best we could with what we had. That's kind of, I guess we can say it, right? Well,
1: I think you did plenty of good. The Killer Bee's defense, you know, a famed legendary defense after the no-name defense. So to have two different defensive units with nicknames, that just doesn't happen. And you were a big part of that Killer Bee's defense, even though didn't have the B in your name. What did it mean for you to be a part of a defense that is now known, you know, in football lore as a defensive unit that was so good that you got a nickname after you guys?
0: Well, I mean, you know, it. Uh, I, I don't know. I think I was another sports writer that uh, that came up with uh, with that nickname for us. I, I don't think you know it's something that uh, we we threw around in the locker room. That, that that's one thing you don't do when you're playing ball. You you're not sitting around thinking of you know fads or thinking of like you know catchy. You know, maybe today you know so many guys Instagramming and Twittering everything. Everybody's got to have a little nickname or a certain. A certain something about, you know, their moves or their performance or their dance or whatever they do. So I, I get it. You know, I, I know the younger generation is, is hip and cool, but, uh, you know, I thought we were hip and cool back in our day. You know? So, uh, but, but yeah, uh, I, I just, uh, I, you know, I just have a lot of admiration for, uh, you know, all those guys I played with and, you know, where we're, uh, we go down in history with, like you're saying, come up with a nickname that people can talk about and remember for a long time. Even, even people today, you know, still talk about that. I mean, it's kind of funny how, especially our Dolphin fans, our loyal Dolphin fans. They just, they love talking about the killer bees, you know, and all the things that we did to make them. But back in those days, we were, we were the, you know, the uh, the horse that drove the, uh, that drove the buggy. You know what I'm saying? So the defense, the defenses would, you know, got us to where we were back in those days. You know, the offense kind of sputtered along and uh, we just kept, if we can, you know, we always told our offense, you can score 17 points, we'll probably win every game. You know, so I think our, our points per game were, in the in the mid teens or low teens, wasn't it? Every year, yeah. In most of those Every, years, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean it's it was it's crazy to look back and see how how it was consistently at the top of the league. I mean, there's defenses now that do that and we talk about them as the all time great defenses. So why are you guys, you know, you're in that conversation as well. And you mentioned, you know, kind of a young guy, but I'm an old soul. I always say that nicknames are not what they used to be. Now it's like a-Rod, which first letter of your first name, first letters of your last name—that's not a nickname. Yeah. It's just putting names together. You had like Billy White Shoes Johnson, and you know the the Killer Bees and the No Name Defense. Nicknames are not what they used to be. So I'm with you on that. I'm 100%. trying to think. Well,
0: well, I'm trying to think of that name of that because uh, we used to hate them. But, you know, they because they they were able to uh, the, the Washington Redskins had that group of guys that would always start dancing in the uh, end zone. Uh, uh, I know they had the Hogs. The Hogs, the Hogs were the yeah. offensive linemen, but it was something. It was a something packed. I can't remember, it was Art Monk, uh, right? Yeah, it was Art Monk, and uh, you know, you know, he threw some more names at me. I would, I would pick, but they always would go to celebrate in the end zone, and they were kind of one of the first. I think they are one of the first groups to, to do celebrations and they got, they got a nickname from that. You know?
1: Well, we'll leave it to Twitter to let us know. They'll, they'll get back to us in the podcast oh, yeah, when, yeah. They, when they hear this, they'll, they'll tell us, they'll, they'll tweet me. So let us know what was the the Washington uh, nickname for the receivers back in those, in those heydays in the 1980s. I got one more question for you here for, for you, AJ. I want to know what's a, what's your best, coach Arnsberger's story, whether it's on the field, it's a, a sideline where he choose a, a, a situation where he chews you out on the sideline, maybe it's in the locker room, maybe it's something outside of football. What's your best coach story?
0: I mean, we were, uh, you know, we were playing, I don't remember the exact game, but I know we were, uh, we were kind of, you know, not doing too good defensively. And, uh, you know, we were get, getting our ear full from coach Shula, you know, <laughs> when we came off the field and, uh, you know, he finally turned to coach Arnsberger, and, you know, he figured he'd shoot everybody's butt, you know, that's coming off the field. I guess the next guy I can shoot is the guy making the calls. <laughs> you know, he just kind of goes, when, you know, like, when are we going to get this damn defense to make some plays for us? And Coach Arnsborg just took his headphones off of his head and said, here, you can make the call. Just walk, just walk to the bench. You went, went to the water cooler, you know? So, you know, he was, he, you know, he, he might've been intimidated by Shula, but he had to show him right there, you know, it ain't as easy as you think, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Kind of kind of, that was a a good moment in time, you
1: know? Hey, if you can do the job, do it by yourself, right?
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. AJ, we appreciate your time today. We appreciate the stories. Eight-year linebacker with the Miami Dolphins, 1977 Defensive Rookie of the Year, AJ Dewey. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. We really appreciate it. All right. Well, y'all take care of that. God bless you guys, okay? And away he goes, famous Dolphins linebacker, eight years with the team, A.J. Dewey. We all remember him from the 1982 AFC Championship game, the three picks, part of a lot of top defenses in the NFL throughout the 70s and 80s there in Miami. As for today's podcast, that is... Is gonna be my time. Happy Juneteenth, everybody! Hope you all enjoy your holiday. Enjoy the day. Enjoy the weekend, all of you. Please go check out the article on MiamiDolphins.com. The fence flashback, taking a look at Coach Sparger from the words of AJ Dewey, as well as Sparger's accomplishments. Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as always. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at Wingfield NFL. Follow the Dolphins at Miami Dolphins. And of course, check out the Fish Tank and the Audible podcast, as well as MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, until Monday, fins up.